0: We have continually uh, emphasized the importance of the word over and over. We talk about how the word is vital to all of life and the word is vital to how we worship. And so you've heard this me we say word, we read the word, we preach the word, we picture the word in the ordinances. Also, we can go out and live the word in the world. And this emphasis is vital because the word is truth. Christ said in John 17:17, 17, 17, sanctify them through or in the truth. Your word is truth. So we must remain solidly on the word of God, because many who claim the name of Christians, many who claim to be children of God, do not follow the word of God. And so we learn that just because someone says they are a Christian does not make them one. Just because something claims to be Christian does not make it Christian. The word is what determines truth. And so in our services, we carefully guard who stands behind this pulpit and brings the word. And that those who do faithfully exposit the word, Uh, we zealously guard the songs that we sing. We insist that our songs be deeply theological in nature and faithfully, frankly, nothing more than shallow, unbiblical, self focused emotional drivel. And so we guard against that. But we need to ask the question are we being unnecessarily narrow? I mean, are we being a little ridiculous with this? I mean, does what we sing and what we say really matter all that much as long as it's spiritual in nature? As long as it's about Jesus, I mean, what's the big deal? Well, in our text this morning, Paul reminds Timothy and the Ephesian church of the danger of departing from the word of God. These things that pull our attention away from the word and cause us to depart from it are not just dangerous. We will see that they are actually satanic. Let's look at our text this morning. First, Timothy, chapter four, beginning in verse number one. Paul writes, now, the spirit expressly says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Well, in this text, we're reminded that we need to be constantly on guard and guard this church against departing from the word of God for two important reasons. The guarantee that some will depart from the word. And the grace of the new covenant. We see first the guarantee that some will depart. He says in verses 1 through 3, the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, some claim uh, who claim to be Christians will move away from the word of God and they're going to lead others with them. It says the spirit expressly says this. It's unmistakable. It's incredibly clear that some are going to depart from, to draw away from, to, in essence, become apostate, is that Greek word, from the truth, from sound teaching. So some who are part of the body of Christ, some who seem to be Christians, will depart from the word and will begin to make Christianity something that it is not. They'll turn away from the theology of the word and they'll begin to accept and promote the humanism of this world. An important lesson is that a mere profession of faith does not guarantee the actual possession of eternal life. Just because something claims to be Christian doesn't mean that it is. Or just because someone claims to be a Christian does not make it so. We're reminded of the parable of the seeds that we looked at in the Gospels. Some seed is going to fall on hard ground. It'll take root and appear to be real, but it's not genuine. Luke 8 describes it this way And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But because these have no root, they believe for a while and in times of testing, fall away. We must ask, however, though, he says the Spirit expressly said this. I mean, when is that? Where does the Spirit say that some are going to fall away? But if it's been expressly stated, when was it? Well, there's many ideas for this because the idea of apostasy in the end times is throughout the entire Bible. We see it throughout the Old Testament and the Gospels and Paul's writings, the pastoral epistles in the New Testament. The numerous occurrences of the phrase the Spirit says in the book of Revelation demonstrates that this phrase can be used to refer to teaching that Christ gave. So it could be referring to the warning Jesus gave about apostasy in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. But I think most likely this is referring to Paul's prophecy in Acts 20. In that text, Paul called the Ephesian elders to meet him. He was on his way down to Jerusalem. And so he called the Ephesian elders to meet him in the port city of Miletus. And as he was journeying there and he spent time with him there. And as they talked and he challenged them, he warned them, Acts 20, 28 to 30. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own self will arise men speaking twisted things. To draw away the disciples after them. See, Paul knew that almost immediately after his departure, false teachers would ravage the flock with unfaithful teachings masquerading as Christianity. We also need to note that Paul sees himself and he sees us as in the last days. It says the Spirit expressly says that in the last times. Well, in fact, the New Testament clearly teaches that we are in the last days right now. We see this in Acts 2, Hebrews 1, 2, 1 John two eighteen tells us children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. You know, often your Christians say the end times are coming, but that's actually incorrect. They're already here. These are. The end times. This period between Christ's first appearance and his second is the end times. And so this means that we must be on guard because Christ and the Holy Spirit taught us that false teachers would come in the end time and would seek to lead the church away from the world. Well, in order to guard against this, we need to understand two things about these false Christians. We need to understand first the cause of their departure. Why is it that they left the word, if we know this, we can guard against it. Well, the cause of their departure is not their high intellect. They were just really smart. The cause of their departure is not some new revelation. They had a dream and an angel came and told them something. Well, the cause of their departure is not an overwhelming love for people that uh, desires their uh, drives their desire to make Christianity pal- palatable to the average person. No, Paul informs us. But the cause of their departure is something far more sinister. He says first that it's by deceitful, demonic teaching. He says they devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. They were devoted. It means they gave themselves to it. They paid attention to it. It actually became a lifestyle for them. And it was deceitful. Led him away, it was seducing. And in the context of this verse, the grammar there ties deceitful spirits to demonic teaching. So these spirits are actually demons, emissaries of Satan himself. You see, this apostasy, this falling away from the word of God is actually driven by demonic beings. We're reminded of what Paul had already written to the Ephesians. Ephesians 6.12 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, our battle is not actually against different politicians or opposing philosophies. Our battle is far more great. It's against... Demons and Satan himself. So when we follow these things, when we depart from the word, we're actually following the teaching of demons. This isn't teaching about demons. It's actually a subjective genitive, meaning teachings taught by demons. When we move away from the word, our teaching actually becomes satanic. Think about that for a moment. When a preacher stands in the pulpit and preaches something that is not faithful to the word of God. It's not just an error, it's actually satanic. This is why an emphasis on the word is so important. You know, we tend to forget that Satan has many strategies in his arsenal. When it comes to the church, he doesn't come appearing as an enemy, a red creature with horns and a pointy tail. The Trident. No, he deceives the church and entices and seduces people into error. Reminded of 2 Corinthians 11. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. MacArthur says apostates are not actually the victims of sophisticated university professors or false religious leaders or wickedly clever writers or speakers. They are victims of demonic spirits. Preventing lies from the depths of hell through such humans. False teaching is that something is something far more than a human aberration. It's nothing less than the doctrine of demons. See, the source of departing from the word is not simply, well, they messed up. It's demonic in nature. Further, this demon-inspired teaching gains entry into the world through human agents, through insincere, unconscionable liars. says verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. The word insincerity is interesting. You'll recognize the Greek word. It's the Greek word hypokrise, hypocrisy. It's the Greek word. Through their deception, they are liars. The meaning seems to be that the demons and deceitful spirits find allies in these hypocritical liars. We already saw this earlier in 1 Timothy 1.19. Remember Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander? He said, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. John talks about this in his second epistle. Second John 7 through 11 says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a, the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked words. These people, they've deceived and seduced the church away from the word. Paul warned the Thessalonians about this in second Thessalonians two he said, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false that 's why it's so important that we ground ourselves in the Word of God. Paul goes on. To the Ephesian church in Ephesians 4 and tells them that they do this so that they may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Instead, the word keeps them solid. Another important note is that these errors rarely come through people who are easily identified as non-Christians. They're nice people. They don't seem like they're doing wrong, but this is because they've had their consciences seared. Like burning your flesh with a hot iron and then that tissue no longer has any feeling. Well, the conscience, what are we talking about? Well, it's that unseen part of us that affirms or condemns our thoughts and actions. It helps us know right from wrong. It's that sensitivity to it that controls our behavior. And Paul viewed his conscience as the divinely given witness to the condition of his soul. But these people have no sense of the heinousness of their actions because their conscience has been seared. One man says it may be the case that many false teachers are unaware of the hypocrisy of their actions. Some have gone so far that lying becomes second nature to them because the standard of truth in God's word has been abandoned. They feel no qualms about because their conscience has been seared. See, by constantly arguing with conscience and stifling its warnings and muffling its alarms, these people have at last reached the point where their conscience no longer bothers them. Hendrickson says, Grieving the Holy Spirit has led to resisting him, resisting him to quenching him. And then through their own rebellion and obstinacy, their conscience will have been rendered seared, and that permanently. These false teachers present themselves as pious followers of Christ. But in reality, they're tools of Satan himself. They present themselves as devoted Christians, but it's all a deceitful mask. We see how this is possible in Romans 1, that as they depart from the word and they depart from the gospel, we're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who in unrighteousness suppress the truth. He goes on and says, because they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them to a debased mind. And then because of this debased mind, God gave them, gave them over to where they began to approve the wicked deeds. You say, but they're Christians. They say they're Christians. They have Christian ministries. But we're reminded in Matthew seven, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Those who do my, the will of my father who is in heaven. One day, many will say to me, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And We preached. In your name, we cast out demons. We did many mighty works in your name. And then I will confess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. John warns us of them in 1 John 2. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. You see, failing to follow God's word failing to be devoted to God's word, failing to grow in deep theology. It's not simply an oversight. It's satanic. When you state that studying the Bible is for smart people, not for you, when you work through things only pragmatically or politically and not biblically, you're being deceived by Satan. That's why fidelity to the word is so important and departure from the word is so dangerous. Now, this departure that Paul is talking about took place in a specific time in history and in a specific way. And so it is helpful to us to see how these deceitful liars departed from the word so that we might see it in our own world today. And so we should note next the content of their departure. How exactly did these people in the Ephesian church depart from? from the word. Well, Paul tells us in verse three, he says they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see, in Ephesus, these false teachers were probably influenced by uh, the philosophical dualism of the day. It was rampant in the philosophy of Greek and Rome. And really what it was, was they viewed anything physical as evil and contaminated. Anything spiritual is good. So they frowned on marriage because it's the ultimate physical institution. Because it's physical, it's to be shunned food it's part of the material world and so they held to strict dietary laws that should be followed in order to be spiritual and they found a hold in the church because these dietary laws could be found in the old testament one man said in the second century this false teaching developed into the dangerous heresy known as gnosticism gnosticism boasted of a secret hidden knowledge they believed they were the initiated ones who transcended the mundane and touched the reality of God, and they rejected the body as part of the evil and physical world. But failing, they failed to recognize that the forbidding of marriage does not lead to a healthier society. Rather, healthy marriages are the foundation, the bedrock of society, and further discouraging Marriage is not biblical because far from discouraging marriage, Scripture views marriage as the initial and primary institution created by God. So when people like the Catholic Church forbid the marriage of their priests, Paul here is identifying that as satanic teaching. When the church cheapens marriage and overlooks People sleeping together and shacking up. That is satanic in nature. Further, food restrictions for spiritual reasons are in direct opposition to the wonderful provision of God. And it leads to legalism. He says they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Those who have faith and and know thoroughly what the truth is, the word of God. He says, food is to be received with thanksgiving. This is a theme through this text. We see it in this verse. We're going to see it in the next verse, in verse 4, and possibly even in reference to prayer in verse 5. We ought to be thankful to God. And when we begin to forbid these things, it demonstrates a lack of thankfulness. And when we read the Bible in its context, and we understand the teaching of God, we come to understand that thankfulness for God's provision does not lead to asceticism, but to partaking with thanksgiving. You know, today, this teaching takes several forms. Right? In regards to food, it can take the form of a demanding adherence to those Old Testament dietary laws. Uh, more often, though, it masquerades itself as a healthy diet that the Bible prescribes. You know, some I've heard over the years point to the Daniel diet. Daniel did this. The Bible says it's good. You should do it too. Some point to the Garden of Eden. See, they were vegetarians in the Garden of Eden. God intended you to be a vegetarian too. They take it that way. But Paul informs us that those lines of argument are not in line with Scripture. They fail in thankfulness to God. In fact, one man, Guthrie, says what's at stake is our whole conception of God. The false teachers were acting as if God were losing sight of his largeness. Those who cannot thank God have no real knowledge of him. Further, these teachings are dangerous because anything contrary to scripture can be the entry point of demonic teaching. We have to be faithful to the word in its context. You see, the fundamental error of this teaching is that it rejects divine revelation and all false teaching at its core is a denial of God's word. Well, Paul continues to explain this argument in the second reason we ought to guard from departing the word, and that is the grace of the new covenant. He says in verse four, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. There's two important principles here. The first is that God's creation is good. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God's creation is good. He said so at the time of his creation when he created it all. So everything that he created is excellent. So it's not to be rejected. The word translated to be rejected here, it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. It literally means to be thrown away. And through this statement, Paul is asking, how can anyone despise marriage, let alone forbid it, when God instituted it? How can anyone condemn, uh, command abstention from certain foods when God created them to be received with thanksgiving? Note again, the word thanksgiving appears. It's a the theme through this text. Not only is food intended to be received, but it's intended to be received with thanksgiving. And when we declare something to be unclean spiritually, that God created We're demeaning the faithfulness of God and acting in an unthankful manner. But this begs the question, okay, then what about the dietary laws of the Old Testament? I mean, was that an unthankful thing? Was that satanic in nature? Obviously not. God gave it. So what about those laws? How were they not then an act of unthankfulness by Israel? Well, to understand this, the reason for and the place, we need to understand the reason for and the place of the law. You see, the law was implemented, Paul tells us in Romans, to demonstrate our sinfulness. We can't obey God. We can't do it, not on our own. Further, the food restrictions in the law were intended to be temporary. They were intended and designed to teach Israel the importance of discernment. They were designed to separate Israel from the pagan societies around them. But you see, if we read in context and we read it in the entirety and the unfolding of the revelation of Scripture, we discover that Jesus fulfilled the law. And because he fulfilled the law, he freed us from it. And so to reimpose it now would be to manufacture a works righteousness system. That's why Paul said in Romans 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean he said in titus 1 to the pure all things are pure matthew 15 christ himself said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person but what comes out of the mouth this defiles the person and mark notes that by this he declared all foods to be clean in acts 10 we see the account of peter peter was a good jew did his best to follow the law. And we have this account in Acts 10, beginning in verse nine. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds of the air there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, typical Peter, no, God, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. It's against the law for me to do this. And God responds. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. The Point was, we are under a new covenant. We're no longer bound by the law. This means that no food system, no dietary restrictions are a means or an indication of spirituality. They don't sanctify. In fact, if they are followed for spiritual reasons, it's actually disrespectful to God. Commentator Kent said to make a distinction between various kinds of food or marriage on the grounds of the rejection of some and the use of others is meritorious, is illogical and unscriptural. Paul even says it is demonic. Listen, if someone follows dietary restrictions for health reasons, I believe this way is healthier than another way. That's commendable. Right, we are, Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. We ought to take care of our bodies. That's good. But if one argues that one way of eating is more spiritual than another, if one follows dietary restrictions and claims it is the biblical way, i.e. the Daniel diet or the Old Testament law or the Garden of Eden, Paul informs us that they are following the teachings of demons because they're speaking contrary to the word of God. What God has said further, when one follows these things, claiming that they're the biblical way, they always demand that others follow it and judge them when they don't. And that is Unkind, it's unwise and it's sinful. A well, man said this, both, both marriage in Genesis 1.28 and food in Genesis 1.29 were given by God to man. It's the obligation of men to partake of these privileges with gratitude. To cast reflection on their sanctity is to dispute the wisdom, purpose, and morality of God and to thwart his intention. The person who argues that marriage or eating is moral or spiritual flaw is calling something evil that God has pronounced good. We see, though, as well, that God's creation is made holy through the word and prayer. He says, verse five, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. What does he mean here? Holy. What well, means to be set apart, to remove from profane or common use, to sanctify? And he's not saying that that the word and prayer actually sanctify the food, but rather that it's through the word and prayer we understand what God teaches We follow his commands and we partake of marriage and food with a clear conscience, knowing that they are right before God. This is why in Hebrews 13, he says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Here's the point. Through this section, Paul described a a destructive legalism, this demanding that you do what the Bible does not demand you do. And it's incredibly dangerous. This legalism is incredibly dangerous because it prevents a clear grasp, the freedom of the Holy Spirit. It destroys gratitude to God, show Such concerns for practicing the negative, they fail to appreciate God's provisions. And they can't endure in the presence of a thankful spirit. See, departing from the word is dangerous for the church and the Christian. God's commanded us to be centered on the word, to allow the word to drive our lives and our worship, to recognize it as the source of truth. And when we fail to follow the word, we actually give in to the deception of Satan. This inevitably leads to discord and to division. For each one follows their own way, the demand that everyone else follow them and their way. This legalism it appears in the church today through things like music and food and dress and medicine and even things as innocuous as the cars we drive. And the cleaning supplies we use. When we use or follow these things for the honorable intent of excellence found in them. Well, then we please God. But when we incorrectly use scripture to argue for their use and judge those who don't follow it. We're following the way of Satan. We're misusing the Word of God the same way Satan did. You look at every account where Satan comes in and tempts Genesis 3, Matthew 3. He quotes God, but he does so in a dishonest way. He misuses what God says. And so, we must be faithful to the Word. So, we'll continue to emphasize the Word here. When we gather, we're going to read the Word. We're going to sing the word. We're going to pray the word. We're going to preach the word. We're going to picture the word so that we can go out and live the word. Let me give you four so what's as we walk out today. It's kind of a shotgun passage. There's a lot here. Let me give you four things. One, be wise regarding anything billed as Christian. Just because they put the Christian tag on it doesn't make it Christian. In fact, I would go so far today to say the vast majority of what is billed as Christian is most definitely not. So just because it says it's Christian doesn't mean it is. Be wise concerning those things. Filter it through the word. That's what determines if it's Christian or not. Is it in line with the correct in context use of the word of God So filter everything through the word? Number three, hold your opinions loosely. Hold them loosely. If you follow certain diets for health or use certain things or drive certain cars because you believe that they're the best things to use and the best stewardship of your finances, then that is honorable and good but hold it loosely, understanding that not everyone agrees with you, and that's okay. That's okay. Hold them loosely. It's not a measure of spirituality. Right? Pepsi and Coke don't measure your spirituality, I'm pretty sure. Not completely sure, but pretty sure. Driving a Ford or a Chevy or, God forbid, an import, I drive one. It's not a measure of your spirituality, right? What you clean with, what you eat, they're not measures of your spirituality. So hold those opinions loosely. Four, be gracious. We should be marked by grace, love and care for one another, not criticalness and judgmentalism, not demanding others follow our way and our pattern. But showing the grace of God to one another. And this happens when we are faithful to the Word. And then the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 4 is going to demonstrate how this is lived out and what it means to be faithful to the Word. We'll look at that over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Father, it is easy to overlook error as simply a mistake. It's easy to follow the thinking of this world and the thinking of our own hearts without regard to the word of God and simply consider it normal. Lord, help us to see the demonic nature of that deception. Help us to love your word. Lord, I pray that Psalm 119 would be the cry of every one of our hearts, that we would love your law, we would love your word, and we would conform our lives to it. Help us to serve with grace and love to one another. Unite our hearts in unity of spirit around your word, that we might make you look as good as you really are. Lord, our desire is that in all things you receive all the praise and the honor and the glory because it is yours alone. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.